Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home again this week. Happy to be here. And as you can see, we're going to get right into it as we are uh, want to do when I have John Atak on board. Hey, John, welcome to my hey. show and welcome me to yours. <laughs> yes, welcome to my show, Chris. <laughs> it always feels a little bipolar doing this. Yeah, so it certainly is is strangely odd and, and not the way that entertainment used to be done. That's the, right. the idea of the dual host as opposed to the dueling hosts or dueling with the host. I mean, we could go into all sorts of puns with this, but we're not going to. No, no. We guarantee it. Exactly. So you wanted to start with um, the fascinating comment that somebody's yeah. made about us being... I'd, yeah, I... Okay, so you and I have done a couple shows now where we have gone gradiently, sort of slowly into your research on and uh, claims about Charles Manson and the fact that he was a lot more connected with Scientology than we at first believed. And then this led to discussions about uh, Jolly West who was a, a psychiatrist, researcher, you know, all around uh, cool guy uh, in your uh, sphere of activity. You were a friend of his. and in- he, he, was a, he was a civil rights activist and a friend of Martin Luther King, and he went on marches where he could have been killed. So the, the notion that he's some kind of evil psychopath. He also spent 40 years opposing Scientology and even gave addresses to the American Psychiatric Association. He was a very famous man. Uh, saying, I'm not intimidated by these people. I can't remember how many times they sued him, but he stood up and that is not the way of a manipulative psychopath. So whether or not he got a little bit of funding here or there from the Human Ecology Fund or the Geschichte Foundation or a Kempro, that was the only one I found that approached him. Maybe he did, but was he aware of MKUltra? Was he running mind control on people, he stood up against it. You know, he, he opposed the death penalty for, for years, um, which Tom O'Neill tries to turn against him as he thinks he's a psychopath with a guilty conscience, which is a really interesting idea. <laughs> yeah, those two things don't go together at all. How, mm. how interesting. Yeah, and, it's, and, it, and character, you know, th- this is a, worth commenting on. Um, because actions, character, integrity, honor, decency, you know, honesty, these are things that are manifested through actions. They're not manifested through words. You can't believe anybody who tells you, well, I'm an honest man, so therefore, oh, I never tell a lie, right? So therefore. You can trust me. I'm a confidence trust. Exactly, right? Yeah, that's not going to, no, right? You can have, yeah, con man, right? Confidence. You can have confidence in me. <laughs> no, 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 no. But actions do speak louder than words. And this is what we are always going on about in terms of how we go about judging or looking at or evaluating groups or individuals as to are they manipulative? Are they cult leaders? Are they abusive? Are they bad? Well, what do they do? And if what they're doing is is in the main good stuff, helpful stuff, an honest effort to try to help people, you you can kind of count on the fact at that point, once you've established that fact and you've established it as this is this person's motivation, this is what this person's doing, you know, you can kind of write off a lot of nonsense by judging on actions rather than words. You really can't. 
And, uh, yeah, and that's where I go a hundred percent of the time with this stuff. And it's a piece of advice that can be found in the gospels where Jesus says, consider the tree by the fruit thereof. So don't go staring at the bark. Are the apples nice? Right. Um, I think that's what he meant anyway. And it, it fascinates me. As soon as I started talking about Manson, there was this avalanche of, of criticism. And so it was initially that I was saying, look, there isn't evidence to prove that Jolly West was running the Manson family. This, there isn't any evidence. And Tom O'Neill himself in his book Chaos says that the most he can prove, um, and I quote, is that he walked the same corridors as Charles Manson at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic in the spring of 1967. How you get from there through to him writing the blueprint for MKUltra and the two and a half years of the assembling of the so-called family and the horrors that they performed, I'd need more evidence than that. But what we're seeing is, is people's gut reaction. The, their feelings of knowing, and yeah. I, you've heard this, me use this one so many times, a Christian recruiter who, as he backed off from me when I was 17, many, many years ago now, and, and he said, I don't understand the Bible, but I know it's all true. Well, to me, understanding and knowledge are the same thing. Right. And so when somebody says, yeah, but it feels as if Jolly West must have done this, I'm like, yeah, really? The reason that people get into cults, the, pe the reason that people get stuck into authoritarian groups is because trust their feelings of knowing. And it's exactly. not to say that, you know, if you have an instinctual reaction, an intuitive reaction to say something's bad, pay attention to it. Yeah, absolutely. But then check it against the facts. Find some evidence. Because sometimes, you know, Nice, charming people can be nice, charming people. They're not necessarily pretending. Mm -hmm. But if somebody comes up to you and they're, oh, wow, you're fantastic. You, you look great. Oh, Chris, what an amazing mustache you've got today. Then if they don't know you and they're pretending to be your best friend, this is the one thing I would really love to get over to every 12-year-old in the world. You know, um, Don't take any wooden nickels, I think is another way of saying it. That's right. But so, yeah, people have this gut reaction. Good luck to them. You and I will try and stick with the evidence. And when we don't know, we don't know. That's right. We don't know until it's proven to me that Jesus rose from the dead and I can put my fingers in the holes like doubting Thomas. I'm not going to believe it. Sorry. Exactly. And when you're going to make, and this this is always a wonderful time to remind everybody of one of the best fallbacks of, of, of principles involved with critical thinking, which is, uh, I believe Carl Sagan first put this forward, um, you know, if, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. If you're going to make a claim that Joe Smith or Jolly West was the architect of MKUltra, Wrote the blueprint. Right, wrote the blueprint for it, right? If you're literally going to say that as a claim, you're going to put that out. Here's a piece of truth. This man was the guy who, who laid it all out, put out the foundations, put out the, the grid, the, the framework for it. I'm going to expect to see some, some documentation, some evidence, some handwritten, some signed document, some tape recording, something that's going to show me Jolly West 
straight up admitting that's what he did or describing how he did it or show me the blueprint with his handwriting all over it. Show me evidence that, 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 that manifests that truth. And if you can't, you really don't have any business making claims like that because they're incendiary character assassination and they are just wrong, you know? And, and, you know, sometimes it's deliberate, it's disinformation, and sometimes it's accidental, it's misinformation. Um, I talked about um, Jolly West with uh, my friend, and I'm probably getting into trouble for this as well, the late Alan Shefflin, um, who was a professor of law. And um, the first two books that were published about MKUltra, published in 1978, were Alan Bowett's Operation Mind Control. Uh, which was promoted within Scientology. I read it when it came out. And um, Shefflin and Opton's The Mind Manipulators. So Alan was one of the, and they came out at the same time. And Alan said me, told me that, that Bowett very generously shared his research with them. So they, they'd seen the same material. And Alan didn't like Jolly. Mm. He said they only met once, and that was in Huey Newton's apartment, you know, uh, Huey Newton wasn't there and he never met Huey Newton, Black Panthers and all that good stuff. Mm. It was a, what a wonderful place to meet somebody, you know, in the apartment of the leader of the Black Panthers. Um, but he, he only met him once over all of the years, which was really weird because they were both deeply involved in the uh, counter-cult movement, let's call it that. Mm. Um, and I, so I said to him, what evidence do you have that, you know, having done – deep research into the, all of the available documents in the 70s. What evidence do you have that Jolly was involved with MKUltra? And he said his name was on a list. That's a lot. But there was a list of people and his name was on it. And yeah, that, that points in a certain direction. But when you understand that MKUltra was... Um, you know, n- more than 90% of all social psychological research from 1945 to 1963 was funded by the US military, mm. right? If you look to Philip Zimbardo's papers, he quite openly admits that he had funding from the US Navy. Uh, one imagines that the Milgram studies had funding from there because there was this terror after Minzetki was, uh, Minzetki was, interviewed a cardinal of the church admitting to having done things he couldn't possibly have done in Russia after, you know, the Stalinist purges of the 30s, after the, you know, inflated notion of brainwashing that came out of China and North Korea, there was a real phobia, a real paranoia. And that created the US intelligence community as we see it today. The FBI already existed. But the CIA, the um, OSS, um, Office of Strategic Services, mm-hmm. was a wartime department. Right. And the US was very proud at the end of World War I that it disbanded its intelligence agency. It had the internal police agency, the FBI, but it had no external agency. And they were very proud of that. And that was a very honorable thing. Two years after World War II, Donovan comes back and forms the CIA. And the major reason for that you know, is because of these paranoid ideas about communism, Mm. that communism is somehow taking the world over. 
And when you look at that history and you look at, say, the placement of Gladio, there are various other names for it. But this is one of the most bizarre episodes in history that the US gets together with Belgium and Britain, gives a huge amount of Krugerrands, gold bars, to a small organization in Europe, and then says, don't report back to us. If communism takes over in France and Italy, as we believe it may, through democratic elections, you will be there to sabotage it. Wind on years later, and we find a, so many groups, the Order of the Solar Temple was a Gladio group. It was founded by this intelligence agency that was renegade. It wasn't reporting. It was secret. Ordo Nuevo in Italy killed nine policemen to try and make people frightened that there was a communist uprising. Wow. So when you get that kind of stuff going on, that kind of paranoia, all sorts of things will happen. So when the CIA funded MKUltra under Sidney Gottlieb, uh, something like 146 separate projects, they didn't go to people and say, we're really worried about mind control. Can you research it for us? We're the CIA. They said, oh, we're the Fund for Human Ecology, the Geschichte Foundation, Kempro, whatever. And we're interested in research. So they didn't admit who they were. And it is possible that Jolly West, when he, he set up a crash pad in Haight-Ashbury in 1967, where his grad students would, hippies would be invited in. And if they'd taken LSD, they could sit there and trip in this friendly environment with these people sitting with, you know, their clipboards and making notes on how they were behaving. So yes, Jolly West did do that. And there's every possibility that the CIA funded it. But that's not being you're writing the blueprint or right. being part of that. And right. Jolly was, I don't know, I, he wasn't a profound friend of mine. I met him four times. We spoke for several hours each time. Um, when he was over in England, he invited me to go and see him at his hotel in London. We spent a few hours there. We just got on really well. And he did everything he could to promote what I was doing because he loathed Scientology. He saw that it was doing horrible damage to people. Right. And so, yeah, when I, I, one of the times I visited him in his office and his PA um, said to me, he keeps two, two books on his desk. He keeps the Bible and a piece of blue sky. Wow. Wow. And through the day, he'd be found opening a piece of blue sky and reading another page and chortling to himself, you know. So yeah. he was urbane, uh, charming, um, and I understand that psychopaths appear charming. Um, he was considerate. Um, when I was offered a, a PhD by Aarhus University and I needed ref referrals, he wrote this glowing referral uh, saying, yeah, you know, he's already done the work. You know, just give him the viva and give him the, the document, which they mm -hmm. didn't. They told me I'd got to learn Danish or German if I was going to be examined. Wow. How useful is that? Yeah. That, that's Scientology. Well, but, uh, these, know, these things you're describing describe. are clearly not psychopathic traits. And, hmm. you know, and there's a thing that, well, no, I'm not even going to go there, really. I mean, any of us can be fooled. Any of us can be fooled for a period. But again, actions are what speak louder than words when it comes to judging human behavior and human intent. And what we see, what you're reporting here, what we know about this man, don't indicate 
architect of the MK Ultra program. They just don't. It doesn't. It there. There's nothing that's been presented that indicates that. And somebody in the comments on on something I said said, "Well, yeah, what's the proof that he did any good?" And so I said, "Well, it just so happens that when he wrote the letter of support to me, he included his CV, which included the." some nine books he'd written, the 180 papers and chapters he'd authored, but also pages of awards that he received for his help in getting people, you know, understanding violence, understanding alcoholism and drug use. Right. Uh, so he, he did a tremendous amount of work that was considered very valuable. He was one of the most celebrated psychiatrists of his period. And of course, as half of our audience perhaps is ex-Scientologists, that leads us to the phobia of psychiatry yeah. that L. Ron Hubbard implanted or sought to implant into us. I never really got there because as a teenager, I knew a psychiatrist. And um, mm. okay, I'll tell the story. When I was 13, <laughs> my girlfriend, who was a year and a half older than me and very beautiful, um, one evening said, let's run away to Edinburgh. And I'm like, yeah, heck, why not? 13 years old. So he did. So hundreds of miles, and we got there the next morning and went to a grandparent's, which is not really my idea of running away. I was mm. very tired by then, having <laughs> been up all night. And we went home, and the headmaster of the incredibly prestigious school I was going to thought, ah, a chance to get yet another ATAC boy. I'd had three of my brothers had been through, and he'd given two of them a, a really awful time because he was a psychopath. Um, so you know, one of my brothers had an application to Oxford University and would have got in. He's brilliant. And this guy actually wrote a bad report on him to stop it. Ugh. So, you know, he was a nasty person. My brothers were gone from the school and there was me. I'm, and he ah, got him at last. So I was sent for a, a psychiatric evaluation and I had the full works, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, all of these tests and little blocks and numbers and what have you. At the end of it, they said, um, well, no, you don't have any psychiatric problem. Nice to know. How many people do you know have been told that? Uh, probably not many. And, I, you know, but the psychiatrist said, you know, if you want to have a chat every now and then. And I started talking with her and she told me what her life consisted of. It consisted of pregnant girls who were 14 and pregnant boys who just attacked somebody. Sorry. I just, I just said pregnant boys, didn't I? And, and it's too late at night. And, you know, pregnant girls who'd been knocked up and, you know, what they're going to do. Yep. And lads who'd got into fights and were aggressive. And I, I just felt really sorry for her. Mm -hmm. Her whole life, you know, and she'd do a 10-hour day with all of this stuff. So every couple of weeks, I'd go along, play my Led Zeppelin records, which she didn't like and read her my poetry. She compared me, you know, I was, what, you know, 13, 14, whatever. Um, read her my poetry, which was deplorable, and she thought was like Emily Dickinson, who I'd never heard of, and have since come to read and go, what were you thinking? <laughs> and, and try and entertain her and bring her up a little bit, you know. So when I'm told by Ron Hubbard that psychiatrists are all part of a conspiracy with all psychotherapists and all psychologists to destroy all life. Yep. Hazel Baker didn't seem that way to me, you know, and I, I, 
I went and visited her off and on over a five-year period. So I did, you know, I joined wholeheartedly in Scientology's campaign against electroconvulsive therapy mm-hmm. um, and, you know, the abuses of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, mm-hmm. uh, which seem largely to have gone now. That, mm-hmm. that, you know, the psychiatric profession, ECT is only used in severe cases of depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm still not sure about its use at all. Me neither. But you know, nonetheless, you know, I do know of cases where somebody's been depressed for 10 years, unable to live, they have shocks, and they're able to manage. Yep. It used to be that just about everybody would get it, not just Jack Nicholson. That's right. Um, and so when I was given this ideology over experience, doctrine over person idea by Ron Hubbard that all psychiatrists are evil, I went, hmm, suppressives talk in broad generalities. All psychiatrists are evil. Um, I, I didn't swallow that idea, but I think with Jolly West that, you know, we probably some part of our audience still have the psych implant. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of all of Hubbard's work as implanting. That's what he was doing, getting mm-hmm. people to agree with his scared, ludicrous, paranoid idea of the world. Yes. And fall into line with being enslaved to him. So we have to be rather suspicious about everything he said. It's not, in fact, true that Julius Caesar chopped the right hands off two million Gauls. Who'd have, who'd have thought, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, there's a, there's, and it's, and it comes down to, or one way I might appeal to the audience or talk to the audience about this is, you know, it, there's a, the only way you maintain hate for some other group or some other yeah, group generality is is to know nothing about them. Yeah. As long as you know nothing about them, right? Or as long as the information conduit of what you are being told about them is is a one way flow. This is I'm the data source. Here's all the things you need to know about this. The thinking has been done. Here's what your opinion of this should be. And that's how L. Ron Hubbard deals with Scientologists on almost any matter, and especially on psychiatry, where it is it's, it is so black and white. Even for Scientology, even for cults, this particular thing in Scientology about psychiatry is so starkly black and white that it, it leaves no room for thinking, for, for exceptions, for, yeah, but I knew this guy one time. No, 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 no. Even him, right? They're all bad, all of them, and, and all psychologists and all yeah, psychotherapists. That's right, all you know, of it. Right? Quite, you know, in psychology and psychiatry, as we know, are quite different professions. Psychiatrists, for the most part, deal with people who have mental difficulties. People who are mentally ill have psychiatric disorders. This is not the same as psychologists. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you and I have studied psychology, so we are aware that you're trying to understand how people function. You've then got clinical psychology where you are trying to deal with, resolve problems with people who are not seriously mentally ill. And you've got social psychology where you are, as with Zimbardo and Milgram have mentioned, seeking to understand how it is people function. Now, that's hugely dangerous to Hubbard. Yeah. You know, but, the phobia itself came when his second and bigamous wife, Sarah, had a psychiatric report made about him. And until that time, I think there were two of the f- five foundations that he started with were run by psychologists. Mm. And he actually did have 
support from the psychological community. Um, Fritz Perls, the founder of Gestalt, said that that it was worth looking at Hubbard's ideas, mm. and I think he did. <laughs> I'm not a fan of Gestalt. Uh, uh, that's Gestalt therapy as opposed to Gestalt psychology, which is another matter. Mm. Uh, Carl Rogers, the founder of Third Force, humanistic, person-centered, he said that that he thought the psychological community was wrong to dismiss Ron Hubbard. So Hubbard was given, you know, much more um, trust than he deserved. Yep. But yep. but here you had a, a much more nuanced idea. And for me, with psychologists, psych psychotherapists, and psychiatrists, it's like the thing that said about having two rabbis in the room. If you have two rabbis in the room, you'll have three opinions. <laughs> And having been around psychiatrists, there is so much dissent and disagreement yeah. in these fields, as there should be in the scientific field, right. where there is just one source of information, as you say, then forget it. And Hubbard is such a bad source of information. Oh, in, in the false data stripping, you know, there's this beautiful thing in the false data stripping where he says, it's Socrates who gave us the syllogism. And you go, well... That's funny because in the Phoenix lectures, you knew it was Aristotle, who's the pupil of a pupil of Socrates. Right. And so you are giving us false data in the false data stripping. Exactly. Theory. Exactly. Yeah. Just, yeah, he's, he, he, Hubbard is always can be counted on for, uh, generalized opinions and most of them being uh factually wrong and mm -hmm. and it's and the man you know seemed to specialize in that in so many different ways and and you find years after the fact you know just the most insignificant pieces of information he'll he'll give you about nothing at all in a, in a lecture and it's totally wrong and you get this completely mm -hmm. skewed view of history or or events or whatever he's he just he, it's like his pathological dishonesty it went to every area of his life, whether it was required to be, you know, to, to be a lie or not, he would just do it just to look impressive or sound like he knew he was talking about or whatever, and just dash these things off. It was his, it and, was, and he fictionalized and amplified things. Yeah. So, you know, the, the teen diaries, his two visits to China, mm. handwritten diaries put into court, into evidence by the church of Scientology and copyrighted by them. And, one of them, there's a retype, and they put that in to bless them. They didn't look at what they were doing, where he changes the stories to make himself ever more the hero. The th one of the things that really surprised me, of course, you know, I was the researcher for Barefaced Messiah. Russell Miller's still the only real biography of Hubbard. But it's, Russell had a copy of my book, which would later become Let's Sell These People a Beast of Blue Sky. He calls it Hubbard Through the Looking Bass in the bibliography of Barefaced Messiah. But he had that, and I've got his marked copy of it now, showing how much of it, you know, more than half of his text came from there. So I, I was deeply involved in researching the, the biography of Ron Hubbard over a period of years. And one of the things I did was I put together 22 accounts of Hubbard's life that came from Scientology, um, 21 of them published. And under the uh, copyright of L. Ron Hubbard. So, you know, he approved these things like Mission Into Time, where it says it's written by the editors, but there's his name on it. And there's all the, the other one is Peter Tompkins' biographical notes, um, which came out of where he was asked questions by a biographer and answered them. Mm. What really struck me 
no two accounts are the same. That's right. So he became a blood brother of the Blackfoot. And of course, the Blackfoot have said, we never made a, just like any other American, Native American people, we never made blood brothers. That's a Viking thing that Hollywood got hold of with Tom Mix or somebody in the 1920s or 30s. Uh, we didn't do it. And then, of course, an eighth blood called Tree Many Feathers, uh, retrospectively and posthumously, makes up a, a blood brother. And that's presented as evidence. And, right. you know, and he later said, no, I had no authority from the people to do that. I am one-eighth Blackfoot, and I did it. Yeah. But Hubbard variously says he was two years old, four years old, or six years old when he became a blood brother, which is to say a full brave, a warrior of the Blackfoot people. Yeah. And we're supposed to believe that. And amazingly, as Scientologists, we did. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. But that's, you know, and again, circling back around to what we were talking about earlier, right? You know, when you look at the differences between somebody like an L. Ron Hubbard and somebody like a Jolly West, you see vast chasms of difference between these individuals mm -hmm. because one is a person who says he accomplished a lot of things and the other person is a person who did accomplish mm -hmm. a lot of things. And Hubbard and was... One of them you know, threw people overboard into sewage in the yeah. harbor of Corf Corfu yeah. and the other didn't. Exactly. Well, exactly. Then when you look at what did they accomplish and what did they do and you see a, you know, a pure psychopath on, in, in Hubbard's, you know, trail of littered, uh, uh, bad, messed up, broken relationships, ruined lives, you know, uh, absentee father, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the, the laundry list goes on and on. And I find myself even still today astounded at how good the deception of these individuals can be how crafty and cunning they can be in convincing you of their sincerity of their rightness of their goodness of their moral virtue and Hubbard was very, very good at it. You know, it's so funny to be on the other side of it where the entire, the curtains are drawn, the lights are on, everything is there. You see it all. And to see it and still hearken back to when you didn't see it all and how you blinded yourself to it. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it requires so many levels of awakening, so many points of, aha, oh my God. And I really feel bad for the people who don't take the time to do that work. So it's, you know, you don't necessarily have to become a full-blown author, researcher, cult expert to do the work. Now you tell me. Yeah, right? I know. That's how I feel too sometimes. But, <clears throat> but... You know, if you don't have, if you can't pull the curtains back, if you can't put the lights on it, if you can't see it for what it was, it's awful hard to say you've recovered from it, to say you can move on from it without it still holding you down somehow. You know, I used to make analogies to even how there would be these, you, you know, you come out of the cult all, you know, ready to, ready to get out of there and you're, and you're definitely out, but there's all these hidden rubber bands attached to your body that are pulling you right back into that mindset, that headspace, that, you know, that schema, if you will, this, you know, the mental constructs and, and frameworks we create to think the way we thought. And, you, and also the blind spots that have been yeah. created so that you're not going to read about the human brain, are you? You're exactly. not going to read about psychology because, you know, the human brain, 
as we said last night, it's just a, a switchboard. You know, why why bother about that? Right. And so the tram lines are laid down and it isn't as complicated as it seems. I, I know many people on Leaving Scientology are sort of going, oh, I now need thousands of hours of frauditing to get me out of this state. And the reality is, if you can challenge just one idea. Um, so, I mean, I talked with Aaron Smith-Levin mm. or Aaron Smith-Levin last mm -hmm. year, and he said, um, and you know, it's up on, on the channel, but he said at that time that he thought that Scientology, you know, the ideas were good, but the language wasn't right. And I was a little shocked by that mm. because I don't think that at all. I think Scientology is nonsense. Right. So I said to him, well, look at a fundamental principle. Um, affinity, reality, communication, equal understanding. And if you increase your communication, then you will also increase your reality, whatever that may be, your agreement, and your affinity. And this is so easy to disprove. If this is a foundational principle, it's nonsense. That's right. And if you increase communication, Hubbard in one place says bullets too are communication. So if you shoot somebody, they'll like you more. Oh, that doesn't work. So therefore, this foundational principle, or the eight dynamics, that was the other one. It's like, so you get one vote, vote and all of humanity, nearly 8 billion people, get one vote. Yep. And God gets one vote. And I, I, I think, I've probably told you this story before, but, but one of them, you know, I think groups of people should get together and discuss this. I think this is helpful. And so I, I once tried this. And the reason it couldn't work was because I was in the room. Because people go, oh, he's the expert. And I said, oh, no, we don't need an expert in the room. So, But I said, let's talk about the eight dynamics. There were 12 of us in the room. Between us, we had more than 200 years' experience of Scientology. And I said, we'll go round from the left. I'm not going to start. person to my left will start. And tell us of a time they used the eight dynamics to solve a problem. You know, they did this voting system that's 200 years of experience. We went all the way around. No one in that room had ever used this in any way. And then I kind of did the, well, you know, one vote for my pet rock, one vote for, for my family. One. And of course, if you believe in God, you can forget about the other seven votes because uh, it's probably best to do what God wants you to do right. rather than getting all the rocks in the universe to agree with you, it's a bad idea. And it's something that it appears, you know, it's the greatest good for the greatest number. It, it, it's where it comes to what was Jeremy Bentham, was it? It's a utilitarian idea. And even that one's a bit dodgy because you've got to work out, you know, averaging things and all sorts of things. But it's a reasonable idea to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Yep. But this greatest number of dynamics thing, um, and I've seen where he stole it from, but, but I, the guy didn't give me a reference. And when I went back to him, he showed me the book published about 1900, where the first four dynamics are written. Mm. So before Hubbard, but he was unable to remember where it was when I went back to him, sadly. Um, and of course those days we didn't carry little mobile phones with us, cell phones with us to take pictures, but nonetheless, if you, so I would suggest a discussion group which people can do online using Zoom. I, I talked with a group this week who are doing this. That you know, there are ten of them or so. They they've come out of different groups and they are they've put a book club together. And you know, so I I did a a thing with them 
where in the end, I think I was asked one question about the book Opening Our Minds. All the rest was, we're recovering. What should we do? How do we really intelligent, astute questions, uh, which one day we will put, on, put up on the channel. But for the moment, um, it, one of the people in the group is a little bit concerned about what might happen to them, which is understandable. Amazingly, there was a woman in the group um, who had grown up in Scientology and spent decades in Scientology and left, you know, within the last couple of years. Mm. And for me that, you know, how awful to have spent a lifetime involved in this thing and then realize, you know, for me, it was nine years for you, it was a little bit longer to, to then realize, oh, this is nonsense. If you can't then go the next step, which is to say, oh, wow, I've been given all of these useful tools. You know, I have been humbled, which is a good thing mm. to, to realize that um, you're not professor know-it-all. I think that was the unpleasant expression somebody hurled at you in the comments one day. That, that we don't know everything, that we do need to test things, that, that, that we are fallible. Yes. That's, that's important. But I think a group that comes together and takes a Hubbard book Whichever one you like, um, history of man's always good fun. Uh, fundamentals of thought problems work. Take a single principle and discuss it. Talk about the axioms. See if you can work out why space isn't a viewpoint of dimension. <laughs> oh, right. You know, truth is the exact time, place, form, and event. What's missing from this equation? It's also the people. Time, place, form, event, and personalities. Mm. And Hubbard's removed himself from the equation. And if life is nothing, as Axiom 1 says, then what are we doing in Scientology? We're reducing ourselves to the nothing that is what the Thetan is, and so on and so forth. Have conversations about it, and you will find that the charge blows off, and you will line charge with laughter about the stupid ideas you believed. That's Hopefully. right. No, I, but absolutely. Don't expect me to do it and Chris to do it for you. Go away and do, oh no, you've got to come on our channel and watch what we're doing. Forget all of that. <laughs> no, it's all it, it's all in that direction. It's all in that direction. I um, and speaking of in that direction, there is a topic that um, that I'm now going to forcefully segue us onto because we've been managing to dive out of it for about two podcasts now. And uh, and we keep promising to talk about it. So finally, here we are. And all of this lead up actually is totally relevant to where we're going, which is therapy and psychedelics. Mm. Now. I am not going to sit here and say that I am any kind of expert in this, that I have done any kind of like significant deep dive. I have some, de some degree of research on this and I have some degree of personal experience on this, but oh. not in a therapeutic situation. And I'm not going to equate those two things. That's the first thing I want to say right from the get-go is recreational use of psychedelics and therapeutic use of psychedelics are two entirely different activities. And in talking about therapy with psychedelics, we are not talking about just sitting on your couch in your living room and spacing out, right? Or zoning out or whatever uh, in a trip. And so I can only speak to the first part. I can't speak to the second part, right? But I have opinions about it. I have, I have read some things. I've read some testimonials. I've read some, uh, some feedback and articles about this from therapists and from patients. And I have some, you know, and I have some open-minded opinions about it, but I wanted to hear John, what your thoughts on this were, um, because it's kind of a big new 
topic and a lot of people are very excited about it. And as with any new thing, there are people who are overpromising. Yes, uh, for sure. Right. I think that's the first thing to say. Yeah. And we could we could segue from Jolly West because he was mm. one of the world's leading drug researchers. That's right. That's right. And, um, in fact, was the person who in 1991, when Steve Hassan and I were having lunch with him, uh, Steve said, what drug were the Manson family using? And he said, Jimson weed. Yep. And in fact, that is accurate. Tex Watson, who led the seven murders of the Tate Labianca households, Watson was using Dutura mm -hmm. uh, against Manson's wishes, it would seem, which mm. is an interesting point. But anyway, Jolly was was somebody who was very knowledgeable about this. He researched LSD, and there is seems to have been this interesting disconnect that in the mid nineteen sixties, suddenly the hallucinogens, as they're called, LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, were declared criminal. Yep, uh, prohibited. Yep, and I. I have spent a lifetime studying this. Um, I read the first book, The Connoisseur's Handbook of Marijuana by William Drake when I was 17. And since then, I've read at least 40 or 50 other texts. Wow. Um, because the concept of prohibition fascinates me. The idea that in our society, it is legal to commit suicide. It didn't used to be. You could be sent to prison for trying to commit suicide or put in a psychiatric institute, but it is now legal. It's not a criminal offence to kill yourself. Um, if you wanted to physically harm yourself, it's not a criminal offence. Mm. But if you take one of these substances, it is a criminal offence. Mm -hmm. And we get a little bit into the history, you know, jump in when I start gish galloping. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. What you got? <laughs> The decriminalization of drugs is something that happens, begins in Western society in 1882. This is the year of the Chinese Exclusion Act in mm -hmm. the United States, mm -hmm. when it is decided that no Chinese people should be allowed into America. What has happened is that a, a large amount of coolies, virtually slaves, have been brought in to build the Pacific Railroad. Yep. and Hundreds, if not thousands of them die in this process. They are viciously treated um, and fortunes are made from them. Mm -hmm. But it's then decided that there are too many of them. It's, it's going to be overwhelming. So we get this, this act. Congress passes an act stopping any more Chinese people coming in. The next stage is how do you get rid of the ones you've got? Mm -hmm. And it was decided the way to do that was to prohibit opium because the way that they dealt with the pain and hardship of their life was by smoking opium, um, which, you know, to be fair, made them a lot less dangerous than the other labourers who were drinking alcohol to, um, you know, because opium tends to be a kind of... Oh, people just zone out. Yeah, they just totally zone out on it. And um, although Scientology does have a handwritten statement that, that was extracted from me, um, under the pretext of confidentiality that they've published, where I say that I took opium twice, uh, I've never actually taken opium. It was actually the extract of uranium 
not Chinese poppies, which just gives you a headache. And that's what it, it gave me. But there you go. They can get you to say things that are not necessarily true. Right. And you can later understand that. But that leads on to this wonderful idea. The US wants bases in China, trade bases, because the British, the Dutch in Macau, British in Hong Kong, Shanghai, have this amazing trade going on where the British, bless us, are growing opium in Bengal under Clive of India, exporting it to China, and the opium wars happen. The Chinese twice tried to stop opium, and the British were making good money from being drug dealers, of course, mm -hmm. and it's helping to fund the empire and the, the spread of our brilliant ideas and our wonderful morality to the world. So two wars are lost by the Chinese. So to get in with the Chinese, a US delegation, as I understand it, says, we'll ban opium. And it's this wonderful two-edged thing. Chinese people will go home again because we don't like them. And we'll be able to have trading posts. So when the Boxer Rebellion comes about, there are American trading posts as well. That then leads on to the Harrison Act. And here... The start of just around about 1900, it, there were reckoned to be about 200,000 people in the US addicted to various forms of opium. So, codeine, laudanum, uh, heroin was already available by then, I think, morphine. Um, about 200,000. There's a vigorous campaign. And by 1915, when I think the Harrison Act first comes in, that number is halved. There are only reckoned to be 100,000. So, a, a public campaign has had an incredible response. Mm -hmm. It's safe to say that from the introduction of the Harrison Act uh, in 1500, um, is it, sorry, 1915. Yeah, uh, yeah, we must have talked too long last <laughs> night. And, um, in 1915, yeah. the Act comes in, and from that day to this, the number has never gone down again. And it at first, it was just as it is here in Britain that doctors could prescribe these things, but then they found it was easy to get a prescription. And so alongside the Volstead Act in 1919, prohibiting alcohol, mm -hmm. you've got this idea of prohibiting cocaine and all of the opiates. Okay. Um, and okay. Synthetics, the opioids. Now, that, when you look to the literature of the time, it's very obvious what it's about. It's racist. It's a way of excluding the Chinese. It's a way of excluding the Mexicans mm -hmm. because of substances they use. There is propaganda material saying that if a white woman uses cocaine, she will run out and have sex with black men. Uh, indeed, moving forward to 1924 in Canada, a book is published called The Black Candle. Uh, and the author's pseudonym was Janie Canuck. And she was a juvenile magistrate in real life. And in it, she writes that, that the, um, the flower of, of the white nations will be destroyed by miscegenation. Ugh. And this will come about through the use of cannabis. And the Canadian government, being incredibly sensible, accepted this research and banned cannabis. Of course. The year before, Britain had actually abstained from a vote to ban cannabis at the League of Nations brought by the Egyptians. 
And um, because there was no evidence, and in the 1890s, there was a huge survey of drugs, the India Hemp Drugs Commission, which published, I think, eight volumes because of the allegation that cannabis was causing psychosis. And they had investigated 500 cases where this was supposed to happen. And they found that what happened was that when the police saw somebody acting strangely on the street, they took them to an asylum. And this is, of course, only the natives, not the uh, sahibs. They took them to the asylum and said they were suffering from cannabis intoxication. Right. On investigation, right. it was found that more than somewhere around half of the people had never taken cannabis. And it was determined that cannabis was not the cause of the, cause of psychosis. At the same time, it was said that alcohol should remain illegal to, to the locals and that um, Datura, the drug that I've pointed out was being used by Tex Watson in the Manson family, should be extirpated, pulled up by the roots. It's the first time I ever saw the word when I was about 17 or 18 and read this stuff, first read this stuff. So we have this thing that, that like the drug that's used in our society is alcohol. In 2010, in The Lancet, which is the journal of the Royal College of Surgeons in, in this country, very prestigious, um, published uh, an overview of the individual and social harms of drugs, authored by Professor David Nutt, who had been the head of our government's advisory committee on the misuse of drugs. Um, he's at Imperial College. He's, I think he's, he must be emeritus, but he's since written a book on cannabis and another book on hallucinogens. And in their survey, they determined what was what were physically the most harmful drugs and what was socially the most harmful drugs. Mm. And they determined that on both counts, the most harmful drug was alcohol. Yep. Gave it a score of 72, I think, or something. Mm. Heroin, they put it around 54, cocaine at 53, cannabis at 25, because in this country, people smoke it with tobacco. Mm. Once you take, they said there are no social harms they could find associated with cannabis. It was a similar study. There was the uh, U.S. Army's Panama uh, Commission on Cannabis in 1914 that said, yes, soldiers can smoke dope. That's okay. There was the LaGuardia report in New York in uh, 1944, I think it was, which was quite extensive. And when you read that, and yep, I did, um, there, there's all this stuff saying, well, actually, all of these stories that have been made up by Harry Anslinger the head of the Bureau of Narcotics. Reefer Madness. Yeah, I was about to reference that. Yeah. They're invented. And there's a propaganda yep. campaign, you know, 1937, they do their thing. The Marijuana Tax Act comes in and there's a $100 tax per $1 worth of cannabis. Now, let's put in a little bit of cultural stuff here. Because of the Volstead Act and the Harrison Act, alcohol, various cocaine, heroin, all these things, they're illegal. Cannabis wasn't. And so when people were going to speakeasies to drink alcohol, part of the culture that's completely disappeared from history in the United States, we know about cannabis cafes in Holland, mm. and they've come back in the US. But jazz, as a music, comes out of the use of cannabis. Mm. And Sidney Bechet and Louis Armstrong, who are the two for me, the two great names at the beginnings of jazz, you've got um, Buddy Bowden, was he called before that? But Armstrong is, you know, and Bechet, the clarinetist, 
it is said that Louis Armstrong would not perform if he'd not had cannabis, mm. illegal or, or not. He That was part of his vibe. And that different music, that different approach, that completely different world and way of looking at things, which is so joyful often. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not heavy metal. This is, you know, the depression's happening and hear all these uplifting songs. Comes out of a culture, Bing Crosby, when he found that his son had become an alcoholic, said, why doesn't he just smoke dope like the rest of us? Right. <laughs> Bing Crosby? You know? I know, right? That's fascinating. In the 60s, LSD, of course, a drug that, you know, the the peoples of um, Central America have been using uh, a loliquoy, um, which is brewed from morning glory seeds mm. and is the natural analog of LSD. They've been using psilocybin, mushroom, and they've been using mescaline. And curiously, Aztec society and other Nahuatl groups are divided so that the warriors take the LSD, the priests take the psilocybin, and the rest of you can have mescaline. That has persisted, the use of these drugs has persisted, of course, among quite a number of Native American people who are legally permitted to use these things. If if you're an eighth blood, like tree many feathers, and you can legally do these things. I became fascinated by the Huichol people of central Mexico who one of the peoples who retreated when the conquistador set their dogs on them and have lived in a certain degree of isolation. I first saw art of theirs, I think, in 1988 when I was in Los Angeles, and the Southwestern Museum had these absolutely astonishing things. Um, I'm looking around because I have two of them in the room with me. What I have are tourist pieces. Um but this is a people where members of the group are judged by the quality of their clothing because you have to make your own clothes. Mm. The religion of these people is interpreted individually through experiences with mescaline. And they have to go hundreds of miles to go back to where they used to live every year to get things. This is a Weechol mask. Okay. Wow. It's very colorful. Yeah. It's, a, it's and for, you, for our audio listeners. It's basically an oval mask, uh, curved in you know around the face with uh, a couple eye holes and and a face there, and it's very colorfully painted in purples and yellows and and uh, reds and blues. And you have certain symbolic figures on it mm-hmm. that represent certain plants and certain animals. Now, what amazed me in the show that I saw these this is yarn. That's been pushed oh, into beeswax. Oh, that's stone. Yeah. Oh, I thought pushed that was into stone. beeswax and it's hard. It's wow. on a, a, a clay Oh, piece. wow. Okay. My first wife dropped and broke, and which I only discovered years later. Okay. <laughs> I used to keep that from me, but I'll, I'll forgive her, I think. But um, what amazed me in the show that I saw, which were flat plywood pieces that had had yarn pushed into them into these incredible patterns was how different each one was that usually if you look at say egyptian art for a couple of thousand years it all looks the same mm. you know with the exception of, of the period of Khnaten where things change a little bit but everything is so stylized that you there's no individuality mm. which whole work is incredibly individual so these are people who are using this mescaline 
Peyotl. They're using this to have a religious experience, mm. to commune with the gods, to understand themselves, their lives, and their own nature. And that started to seep into Western culture. We have the word psychedelic, which was originally psychedelic. And the word was invented by Aldous Huxley. Really? Yeah. Of Soma who, theme. Of <laughs> Brave New World. Of, yeah. Okay. And it, it is very interesting. I mean, the, the last words of Aldous Huxley, uh, as he was dying, he decided he wanted to take LSD. And uh, his last words were, LSD, try some. Yeah. <laughs> I can understand that motivation. Uh, I can totally understand that. There, so at the yeah. same, same time that, you know, Zen and Western ideas, Eastern ideas were, were, were pouring into the West after the Second World War, this chemical that Hoffman, had, Hoffman LaRoche had put together, LSD, which is incredibly powerful. It's served in micrograms, not milligrams. Mm -hmm. That broke into the culture with Ken Kesey on, on one coast and um, Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert on the other. That's right. Uh, never been a fan of Timothy Leary or indeed of Richard Alpert, Baba Ram Das, as he became known. Uh. But Ken Kesey and his merry pranksters and their magic bus traveling down California giving people acid seemed to. They seem to have the right intention, mm. but I think we're both on the same page where we're saying, look, don't just take this stuff. Mm -mm. It, the first thing that you have to understand if you decide to take it, and I wouldn't recommend it, but if you decide to take it is the set, the people you take it with, yep. and the setting, the place that you take it. That's right. Be somewhere safe. Be with somebody who's not taken the drug he was not taking it now, but has taken it in the past. Right. Somebody who understands how to guide you through it. The, to close on that, because I have been going for a while here, th there's also another class of drugs, and we're seeing a lot of people talking about ayahuasca now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it was in a, a TV thing, The Path, about a cult group where they're all taking ayahuasca and having these. Now, this is, a, as, as I understand it, a deliriant rather than a hallucinogen. Mm. A hallucinogen, you see the world around you and you it transforms a little in front of you. So, you know, the rug will start having letters in it or stuff like that. But you know where you are. A deliriant um, and, you know, Ibogaine, Ayahuasca and Datura all fit into that class. As far as I'm concerned, there is some argument about Ayahuasca, but you can go into another world. So you're not, not just changing the look of what's around you a little bit. You can actually find yourself in another world. Yep. Very much the sensation that is described as K-holing on the drug ketamine, where you just melt into, you know, you, you no longer feel like a, a person anymore. You can feel that you're at one with the group around you. Mm. Um, with ketamine, that's a very brief experience. With ayahuasca, it's something that can go on for quite some time. With Datura, when Tex Watson took it, and he took a ridiculous amount, but he was tripping for 10 days. Mm -hmm. And he came to on the sidewalk 30 miles away from where he'd taken the drug, crawling among a group of school children on his hands and knees, and this is from his own account, going, beep, 
beep, beep, beep, because he couldn't talk anymore. And he talks about seeing aliens and all of that. So there's this other class of drugs, which, you know, I think we should be cautious about anything that will change the way we perceive and interpret the world. But I would be especially, you know, I would avoid Datura completely, be very careful about Ibogaine, be very careful about Ketamine, and be very careful about Ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. You'd be pretty careful about everything, but that's the kind of review of some of the history of it and and how we got to it. No, that's great. Thank you for that breakdown. That's uh, definitely way better informed than I am on on all the breakdown of that. And I'm I'm, I'm familiar with certain parts of it, of course. Um, the it, it, the parallels there with uh, with the prohibition. And how this country, the Amer- you know, the United States, uh, really went hog wild on censorship on this idea that we were going to be able to prohibit the taking of these chemical substances, right? Whether it's alcohol or cannabis or ayahuasca or whatever, and somehow we're going to have this, you know, brave new world, this wonderful society where everything's going to be wonderful because none of us are going to be addicted to anything doesn't really match up with the human experience very much. <laughs> and of course, the, you know, the differentiation is made between soft drugs and hard drugs. Mm-hmm. A hard drug is addictive. A soft drug is not. LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, more recently MDMA, um, which was first synthesized before the First World War. And then as part of the Versailles Treaty, Germany had to hand over its patents. And one of them was the patent for MDMA. And it was only in the 1970s that a chemist in the US who's believed responsible for more than 200 different drugs mm-hmm. realized what it would mm-hmm. do. And that takes us into the therapeutics right. that um, post-traumatic stress disorder has been successfully treated in a proper rigorous study through the use of a couple of doses of MDMA, what is more commonly called ecstasy. Mm-hmm. And Australia has just um, decriminalized the use of MDMA for medical research. Um, and the I'm told the FDA have fast-tracked the next study into MDMA because it appears to be tremendously helpful for some people. Yeah. I would like to add that there is research on LSD being helpful for that, on psilocybin being helpful for that, and on cannabis being helpful for some people. But exactly what you said, Chris, that doesn't mean you just go and score something and do it. Be very careful with anything that can alter your consciousness. Take it in a small amount first. Oh, psilocybin is is now legal, I believe, in in Colorado, the only place in the world where it is. They've decriminalized it for medical use and for medical research in Australia. But with psilocybin, I've seen some of you know the packets that it's being promoted in, Mibblers, these were called, and they're little pills. And it says how many you take for what effect. So my advice would be with anything like this, take the smallest dose possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't the same day, double it, double it, double it, or try and take more. See what the whole day, you know, how that yeah. feels and work your dose out from there. Always have a guide with you who's experienced with the drug always be in a safe place. That's right. You know, don't, don't, you know, 
go to a bullfight and take this stuff, you'll be in trouble. No, don't even go down to the local park your first time. I mean, you don't want to be outside. Um, there's a, there's a, you got to find out, you know, we're all so individual, our individual body chemistry and our genetics and our, and, and our experience set and our education and all of it. All of it plays a factor and you don't know what's going to happen or what's going to be emphasized by your brain at any one moment when you're on these drugs. And these are powerful mind altering experiences. They alter your perceptions sometimes in incredibly significant ways, Uh, especially when you get into the level of, um, uh, oh, what is it? The, um, the, the, the stuff they were using in Latin America um, that comes from the cactus. Oh, the mescaline. Mescaline. The That's, sorry, I kept, th- I kept thinking. Jacinto. Yeah, mescaline. Um, these are hallucinogens that can cause perception changes that you cannot differentiate from reality. Uh, it's not always true that LSD, I can tell you from personal experience, that LSD is not necessarily always going to give you hallucinations. Um, but there are drugs that do, right? And when you start talking about the heavy-duty stuff, I believe MDMA fits in here. Definitely the ayahuasca, definitely the mescaline. You can have experiences that you're going to want somebody around who is going to make sure your body is going to be safe because you may respond or react to things that you're seeing or hearing or perceiving that are just not there. Um, this is really an important thing to understand about the different drugs and what they can do to you. They are not all the same. It's not all just one big happy pool as, as John has so competently broken down here. Um, but having said all that, right, just all of that's kind of like recreational caution, like, Hey, just be smart, be careful, you know, because the way it was described to me that I have found to be true is, (laughs) Is these are these are substances that give you thoughts you that that you don't have language for. There's just no way to describe certain experiences. It would be very very hard. Be very hard. All I can say is, you know, I haven't tried it. I published a novel called Halcyon Days, D A Z E, uh, about a psychedelic band forming in an art college in 1966, and it set me this challenge of describing. Uh, an acid trip, and I described two in there, and I read a lot of things that people had written, and nothing seemed satisfying. Mm. Be- and it, I interviewed a, a friend of mine who'd taken far too many drugs over the years, and he described experiences he'd had, and I read about other experiences, and I finally did put something together. And I can say, yeah, it's incredibly difficult to express this because the stream of consciousness is interrupted. Yeah. And you get sort of, there's a famous story about a guy who realized the secret of the universe while he was on LSD and he wrote it down. And when he, he went off and came down and had a sleep and woke up and excitedly looked at what he'd written down. And this is the secret of the universe. Are you ready for this? <laughs> Bring it. If I stand on tiptoe, I can touch the ceiling with my fingertip. There it is. <laughs> All in there. Yep. And I was going to say before, there are hard and soft drugs. A hard drug is addictive, a soft drug is not. The hallucinogens are not addictive. They won't cause dependency in the same way that alcohol does, mm-hmm. the same way that heroin and cocaine, amphetamines, barbiturates That's do. That's right. Uh, That's right. That doesn't make them safe. And it, it, 
yeah, with cannabis, there's some argument either way that there is an argument that it causes a dependence, can cause a dependency in about 10% of its users. Alcohol causes addiction in about a quarter of its users. Mm-hmm. Um, cigarettes cause addiction in 95% of the users. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got different things there. I, I found myself years ago, I sat, sat in, in a little hotel bar late at night with this guy who told me that he'd not talked to his sister for two years because she was a druggie. Mm. And I was, she's your sister, man. And he sat there and he had six single malt whiskeys while we were talking. I was teetotal at that time and for a long time. And so I had some orange juice. And I said to him, you know, hard drugs, soft, soft drugs. So for example, coffee is a hard drug. It's addictive. And if you stop taking it, you'll get a headache. And I'd forgotten that there was a woman, you couldn't see her. She was, the bar had a, a screen and I couldn't see her. And she suddenly piped up and said, my husband stopped drinking coffee last week and he's had a headache all week. How wonderful is that when the universe gives you that thing? <laughs> the upshot is that when I said, well, you know, what drug is your sister using? And I thought he was going to say she's a heroin addict or something like that. She said, she smokes cannabis. Oh, for Christ's sake. Yeah, calm down. And I'm very happy to report that at the end of the conversation, the next day, uh, he found his sister. Good. And, Good. you know, um, more communication, not less, is that, the answer. That's the answer. That's right. When in doubt, communicate. Um. <laughs> Unless it's a suppressive person or it's about your own case or problems or it's a verbal technology, then you must. Then you must not communicate. That's right. You can communicate freely with any person on any subject. Sorry. Right. Accept those things. Listen, let me, um, let me talk a little bit more about this because I had some other things I wanted to say about this while they're still in my mind. Um I am trying to relate this to the things that I know or the things I know something about. And maybe I'm connecting dots that that maybe don't always connect for everybody. But I'm going to say this. I'm going to say these things as, as suppositional or as sort of like I'm, I'm wondering about these things. Mm. From my own experience with, um, with psilocybin, with uh, LSD, um, these are incredibly – they can be – very deep experiences. They, 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 you know, if, if, if I like to, you know, I talk about two-dimensional thinking and how people often engage in two-dimensional thinking. We're very surface level. They just want the headline. They just want the immediate news and they'll judge based on that. And they, and you don't get the depth of the history of a thing, which is sort of your third dimension, right? Literally looking deeply into a story or an event or a circumstance and that's three-dimensional thinking. And I've talked about that as, as, as very, very important. Years and years uh, ago, I, I first brought this up as very, very important for good critical thinking is do the deep dive. Do the th- think about things in three dimensions, not two. Well, here's the mind blower is you, is you get on this stuff and you're thinking in four dimensions, you know, five. Like it, like it changes your entire perspective on how you're thinking about the concept of self, of identity, of community, of communication, of connection with other people. Now, I'm a very empathetic person. I'm a very strong, compassionate person. I care a lot about other people. So it would make sense that I would have experiences that would push or move me in those directions. Not everybody is, and not everybody would have that kind of experience. But I will speak from my experience. It reinforces and gives even more depth of understanding to 
my motivations, my influences, my reasons for things. And most importantly of all, what it gave me time and time again, because I've had this a couple of times now is, and I was not, and, and let me be clear, there was no effort on my part to think I was doing some kind of self therapy. This was a recreational experience done for recreational purposes. That yeah. being said, there was absolutely catharsis for me in these experiences because there was this, this, again, this sort of, the only words that come to mind that I can communicate are, are just a, a, a grand view of the universe, a grand, like a really, not a hundred foot perspective, like a thousand mile perspective of my life, my circumstances, my relationships, everything. And it puts it in a light that you just don't, see otherwise it's 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 it, i wish i had better words but i can say that much about it and having said that and having had those experiences and relating them to the neuroscience that i do the little bit that i know and understand i think to myself and i can relate this to other experiences i've had in my life which i will call epiphanal right these epiphanies these like oh kind of moments where your brain just opens up and suddenly you can look at things in a very different way and it can be quite intoxicating. It can be quite an experience. These are awe inducing moments often. And, um, and I love epiphanies. I love them. I love learning new things. I love having new experiences and having realizations and, and, uh, you know, this sort of awakenings or mind openings that can come from that when you get a new perspective on a thing. I talk about perspective a lot because that's kind of how I think about how I view the world is from different perspectives. And it's always so great to get a new one, one you've never imagined was even possible. And you get that thousand mile view. That's a heady, heady experience. And I think that in a guided situation, the potential is there from somebody who, who is a ther- from a therapeutic point of view. You have a potential in these moments, these epiphanal moments, to rewrite a great deal of information very quickly. You know, and this is why I think it has therapeutic value or could have therapeutic values. I think it enhances or boosts the plasticity of our of of how we can confront and deal with our trauma or deal with our past and again this would require education educated guidance this wouldn't be something you would just want to go do on your own yeah i'm going to go get high and and trip on acid and dive into the demons in my world right don't do that <laughs> right because the one thing you don't want to do is induce a bad trip uh, on yourself and without guidance and without somebody who's watching and caring and, and understanding what's going on, you can do that very easily. I, I, you know, you, I could see myself a few times in my experiences with this faced at a crossroads of like, okay, I can go down this road into that very deep black well over there and take a deep dive and, and immerse myself in my demons for a while you know what? I don't think I want to do that. I think I'm going to go in this direction. And I had enough power of choice to be able to make that decision. But I think that that is a danger of, of solo or unguided or just kind of doing it for fun and then diving into your trauma. I would not recommend doing that. 
Yeah, um, don't drive a car when you do. Oh God, no! Oh, I would never go anywhere near motorized vehicles during this. I don't even want to be on a bicycle. Mm, but and keep I, the I, knives in the drawer. Yeah, yeah no, seriously. But if you've got a gun, take the bullets out. Yeah. So. Walking around, it's. It, it, I'm telling you, you go into some different places. Your moral mm. foundations don't change. I didn't become a different person. It's just your view of things very, very much changes. And, um, and I think I said, I there's this. I think that it can properly used or in a proper context or in a in an educated context i think that there is an increased plasticity i think that there is a chance of rewriting some things you know that this gives you or potentially gives you and i think that that can be a positive it can be used as a negative you can go down bad roads with that but i think it it offers that as a possibility or potential and i and that's kind of my understanding i'm again i'm connecting dots that maybe don't connect but i think they do um this is my opinion of this and why I think it has therapeutic value that has been mostly unexplored because of the illegality. It was just getting going. They were just getting going on really researching this. And then the clamps came down back in the fifties and sixties and they locked it all down and nobody could research psychedelics with, uh, with counseling or therapy. So now we're finally coming back around on that. And, um, and I have high hopes for it, but I'm extremely, um, as you can tell here, right. I'm, I'm all about caution because the potential for disaster is there. And, uh, and, and the mind is, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say everybody has the capability of just, you know, intro, good introspection or that they can give themselves a positive experience. Some people are right on the edge with their trauma and with their bad experiences and with their, with their psyche. And, and, and the last thing you want to do is, is feed psychedelics into that and let the person just go hog wild. You don't know where they're going to go with it. So caution is the order of the day with this a hundred percent of the time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, we, we can connect back to the CIA mm. because the reason that LSD poured into the culture was the CIA because yeah. they were doing experiments with it. It was legal and they did thousands of experiments with it. One of the people who was experimented on was Ken Kesey. Mm. And that's how he encountered uh, psychedelics at the beginning of the sixties. Mm. Um, I can also connect it back to the psychiatrist that I knew as a kid because she was one of the researchers working on LSD oh. back in the 50s. So I knew her, I first met her in 1968, and she was horrified at the thought of people using LSD. And I asked her why, and she said, well, we gave it to an eight-year-old and it did awful things. And I just looked at her and went, you gave LSD to an eight-year-old? Wow. Where are you living? Right, And uh, there was a tremendous amount of psychiatric research done. Uh, Stanislaus Grof in Czechoslovakia headed research there, then moved to the US and started getting people to hyperventilate to have experiences, which is a really bad idea, you know, breathing very rapidly until you get dizzy because you are inducing trauma into your system mm -hmm. and you may feel you're releasing trauma because when you stop banging your head against a wall it feels so much better but definitely wouldn't recommend that but i, I remember all well, 30 maybe even 40 years ago watching a documentary where a couple of psychiatrists who headed research in britain were walking through the deserted hallways of a dilapidated psychiatric hospital and saying, oh, 
we achieve such great things using this LSD with schizophrenics. We had breakthroughs and, and they were, you know, there's this idea of, you know, schizophrenia, psychosis being a permanent condition that somebody's stuck in. And of course, people cycle. It can get better, it can get worse. Yep. And so in, you know, in a controlled situation, there is a possibility that is, this is useful. However, mm. I have also recently been reading reports of work on psilocybin where it's being suggested that there has been somewhat of an overstatement of benefit. Mm. Um, and be, by using placebo alongside microdosing, the same effects are being achieved. Mm. So as we are dealing with the malleability, the plasticity of the mind, there's a great deal of suggestion is possible. Yep, yep. For me, I think the value of psychedelics, and you let me state my position, I, I don't take psychedelics, okay? <laughs> um, I just doesn't appeal to me. Yep. Um, I, but I do know that, that there is a tremendous advantage in psychedelics in seeing things from a different perspective. Um, Arthur Kersler, who is a more controversial figure now than he was when he was alive, but he funded um, the first chair of parapsychology oh. uh, at, I think, at Oxford. Uh, he wrote The Ghost in the Machine, which is fascinating. He wrote an, an incredible history of astronomy called The Sleepwalkers. He wrote about Lamarckian evolution uh, in the case of the midwife Toad. And of course, since then, epigenetics has come in, and which is Lamarckian evolution, that you can acquire a trait that you then pass on. It's not like, you know, if your little fingers cut off, your kids will be born without little fingers. It's not quite that simple. But right. he, had a, he also won a Nobel Prize along the way um, for a, a novel called Darkness at Noon uh, about the Spanish Civil War, where he had fought. Hmm. And in which he is attacking communism and the notion of communism, having himself been a communist. Um, so he, he was, a, in his lifetime, a very illustrious character. And then he committed suicide in old age, and his wife, who was much younger than him, committed suicide with him. And that seemed deeply wrong. Yeah. But, so, you know, wow. a little note there that, Human beings don't tend to be perfect and infallible. But he did say some penetrative things. And one of his close friends was Aldous Huxley. And when Huxley started, um, he wrote two books, Heaven and Hell and the Doors of Perception, uh, from which the group The Doors took their name. They were originally uh -huh. called The Doors of Perception. Oh, okay. And he did a very good thing. Uh, I think it was Heaven and Hell particularly, where he describes his first masculine trip. And... I think that's a, a good way of finding out about what it's like because you've got one of the most brilliant minds of the generation who is, you know, getting some daft ideas by then. He'd, he'd taken up with Bates and wrote a book called The Art of Seeing with this belief that, you know, the flickering of the stars is because of the movement of our eye muscles. It isn't. Mm -hmm. um, and that you can cure your poor sight by doing exercises. 
And people talked about Huxley at the end of his life not being able to read his notes on the lectern anymore because he'd taken his glasses off. He was determined that the Bates system worked. Uh So, again, fallible character. But when Huxley started to advocate the use of initially of mescaline, Kersler said, huh, to, to have the mystical experience, to have a profound experience of the world, you have to do the work. You know, so just putting somebody on the top of the mountain with a helicopter is not the same as climbing the mountain. You won't have the same experience. And I think it is important to say that just as there are feelings of knowing, there are feelings of profundity. Mm. Something can feel profound that if you step, stand on tiptoe and touch the ceiling with your fingertips, you've answered the problems. Now that feeling is often, it would seem, a part of the psychedelic experience. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. As long as you don't think that you have now achieved enlightenment, which, of course, we may have done. And, you know, that this is, it, it's, it's rather like, um, I watched this great documentary about Ye, the man who used to be called Kanye West. Right. Ye. And there was this wonderful uh, poet in it, and she said she'd come up through slam poetry with Kanye, when he was called Kanye. So his at first performances, she was there and she was performing. And then she was diagnosed with bipolar and he was diagnosed with bipolar. And she said, the thing about bipolar is when you're high, you think this is the way to be. Mm-hmm. And I've recently done a couple of shows with John Hunter, who's a brilliant expert on bipolar because he has it. And he said, I talked with him today and he said, you know, he, he's South African, but he was over, he was a businessman working in London um, in 2003, and he was a Christian, and he started to feel God inside him. And he threw up his job, and, and he started doing voluntary work. And he said the thing that was amazing to him was that people who'd known him for 20 years made no comment about the extreme change of his state. And he believed that he was... You know, enthused, I think, is the, the Tony Ortega says we shouldn't use it as a as a verb, but entheos to be full of God, enthusiastic. The end point of Scientology to be enthusiastic, to be full of Ron. Ugh, horrible Ooh. thought. Ooh. Um, that went horribly yeah, wrong. All of a sudden, it was great. It was a great thought, and then suddenly full of Ron, and I was like, "What a minute! What?" <laughs> Enthusiasm. Wow. Yeah, we've got to be careful. So, to I think it is a good thing to see the world from the top of the mountain, even if you get there by helicopter, because you will see that. But it may be that, as you said at the very beginning of this conversation, we can overvalue mm-hmm. our experiences. But I do think, I think this is why Hubbard banned LSD. Mm. Um, I mean, the actual story is that um, Harvey Haber and somebody else had annoyed him at La Quinta while he was making the tech films which have all been withdrawn. Mm-hmm. How interesting that is, this mm. great piece of work by the, the great master. Um, two people had annoyed him, so he had a folder error summary done. He had their folders checked to see what they had in common. And what they had in common was they both taken LSD. Yep. On research into two cases, I have found that people who have taken LSD are one, stupid. Now, I have two sources that tell me that Aaron Hubbard took LSD. Mm. One of them was David Mayo, 
and David was very careful not to reveal anything Hubbard had said in session. He said it was a conversation he was having. He said, oh, I've taken it. And the other was a pupil of a, a guru in a small group in, and not necessarily a negative group in California, whose guru had taken LSD with Aaron Hubbard at one point. Okay. So Aaron Hubbard was one stupid on research of three cases. Um, but I think that Hubbard may have realized that one of the, the benefits and dangers of psychedelics is that you can have a very different perspective suddenly. Yeah. You can see, yep. and you might suddenly go, oh, I don't want to spend all my money on Scientology and take out bank loans and ruin my life and my marriage by doing this. And so we had this weird situation in 1977 where probably about half of the people in the Sea Organization had taken LSD because they'd come from the hippie thing That's into Scientology right. in the late 60s. That's and they were allowed to stay. Yep. But anyone else wasn't allowed in, which was probably a good thing. No, this was made such a thing. Let me let me just clarify for the audience in case y'all don't know. Like we're not just talking about another rule. Hubbard laid this down with a branding iron. Like it was like if you are a Sea Org recruiter and you bring somebody into the Sea Org who's taken LSD, you're going to the RPF. Like which it was is like, the gulag. The yeah, which is the fucking the gulag. Right? You spend two years doing as you're told. Yeah, yeah, at least two years. Some people have spent, you know, ten. It's mm -hmm. it's the worst. And this was the this was the instant punishment. I mean, Sea Org recruiters. It's the one thing that they're terrified of is bringing somebody into the Sea Org who's an LSD case. They check it. They check it and check it and check it again. Uh, because Hubbard laid it down that this is not even like a petitionable point. There's no exceptions. Never, ever, ever. Now, of course, David Miscavige has made plenty of exceptions, by the way. But in writing... Oh, and I was just about to say, if you don't want your kids to get in Scientology, give them LSD. Yeah. If they're talented, they've made exceptions. Uh, I think Peter Schluss was an example of that. I think that was... Talented, commercially successful... Yeah. Very good at recruiting or have a huge amount of money. That's right. That's right. If Scientology needs you, suddenly that isn't such a big deal. But it's but seriously, it actually is. Even then, it's it's a big deal. And I've seen I've seen instances where you think they would have pushed it through and let the person in and they didn't because he's taken LSD. It's it is kind of a big deal. So it's um it's what's so not treated lightly in Scientology. This is one of those points where oh. where I can say this is what important. would happen if, if somebody spiked David Miscavige with LSD? <laughs> I think he'd probably want him dead. <laughs> I mean, Could he still be the head of Scientology? Technically not. Technically not. I think not. we should work on that. Yeah, on that. <laughs> I, I was amazed. I, I, there's uh, this uh, couple, I can't remember what they're called, who, who've got all sorts of wacko conspiracy ideas. Oh, yes. <laughs> And he was in the Guardian's office and he laughs like a hyena while he's telling stories, which is most disconcerting. And I'd heard this thing about a psychiatric conference where LSD was put into all the toothpaste. And he confirms it. So you're going, this is, you know, how despicable to yeah. say that something is this bad and then spike people with it. Just... And oh. toothpaste is a bloody stupid way to do it. Eye drops would be much better. Oh, well, that's true. I can't, I, I'm going to say right off, I mean, I can't think of anything 
I mean, short of outright violence, I can't think of anything in terms of a prank you could play on somebody that would mm. be more off the rails. It would be more immoral than spiking them with, uh, with a psychedelic and, mm. and they have no idea what's happening. I mean, this was, this was standard practice for lots of MK ultra experiments and they, every one of them is the most inhumane thing you could possibly do to somebody because if they lack context for what's happening to them, I could see people going really pretty nuts. I mean, there's, there, there are experiences that are just, you want to know what's going on. You want to know you're on a hard drug right now, or you want to know you're on a powerful drug right now. And it's, it's a soft you know, drug, but it is a powerful drug. Yeah. Soft, but powerful. Exactly. Cause it is not addictive. I can tell you it's not addictive at all. I have complete power of choice. Of, no evidence of, of that, that, you know, at now, all in, alcohol, in years of pot, other things. Yeah. I can see addiction there I, and smoking. I, but, I was, I'd yeah. say there's dependency with cannabis, but but because your withdrawal symptoms, having known something like a thousand people who've taken cannabis, yep. the worst I've ever heard is, uh, oh, it'd be nice to have a joint. Yeah. So people having like cold turkey experiences, or of course with alcohol, if you stop taking it suddenly, you die if, mm. if you're up on a high dose or you get delirium tremens, right. which is the worst kind of hallucinogenic experience there is. Yeah. And that's worth saying that what you experience on a drug is your own neurochemistry. Yep. It's not something that's added to you. It's that you're processing information differently, which I think can be very useful. When I, you know, got brave enough to get past my psychophobia and read Oliver Sacks' Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which I recommend to everyone, um, it was amazing to find this whole list of conditions which are not psychotic mm. that are to do with brain disorders. So you have a broker's aphasia where you can't make sense of language. You, you lose words. Um, curiously, in 50% of cases, it's not because of any damage to broker's area, but recent work on language has said language is actually distributed throughout the brain. It's not centralized to Wernicke's and broker's. They're mm. significant. But reading Sachs and going, you know, you could be somebody who, who you think you're dead, for example. You're convinced you're dead and no argument will persuade you otherwise. You think one of your limbs doesn't belong to you. Um, you have paralysis in a limb but don't accept it. So if somebody offers you a tray and you drop it because you can't lift one of your arms, you blame the person who gave you the tray. But you're not mad. Hmm. Some part of your processing of the world has gone wrong. And the understanding of that, and yeah, the sim simple one, which I love, if you get somebody to sit, you get two people, have one sitting in a chair and the other one looking into their eyes to make sure that their gaze doesn't move. So they're looking straight ahead. Then you take a playing card, the back of a playing card, of, which is red, green, blue, whatever color, and you bring it into the visual field to about here and you ask the person what color it is, and they can't tell you. Then you move it further, because the edge of our visual field is colored in, as we perceive. It's called filling in, and it's a process that's been proven now thousands of times in experiments. That understanding that we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we think it is. Mm -hmm. Which, uh, yeah, when Ron Hubbard talked about having your own universe, Immanuel Kant apparently put this forward in the 18th century. The universe is real, contrary to Hubbard's thoughts, 
but we each live in our own construction of it, That's right. our own interpretation of it. That's, right. That's a point where drugs can become very useful because it can give you a different perception. Then you have drugs that act in a particular way. MDMA, I think, has been very important. Um, it was used for about 10 years in therapy. And then in 1986, it was declared illegal. There was no research. There was no statement as to why it was illegal. It was just, no, people are enjoying themselves too much, and we can't have that. Yep. Therapists who'd been using this drug were saying, you know, I remember reading, because I read a few papers about this way back in the 80s, and one of the therapists was saying, you know, I got more traction from one dose of MDMA than I got giving the guy a year of therapy. Yep. So it's not necessarily going to happen. The other thing, MDMA doesn't tend to cause hallucinations mm -hmm. or illusions or anything. Mm -hmm. It tends, in fact, to focus the stream of the mind rather than scattering it and make people feel more aware and that their perception is enhanced. Cannabis, I think, is perhaps of all drugs the most fascinating. Yes. In 1991, thereabouts, in Israel, it was discovered that the human brain produces a chemical called anandamine, um, ananda being Sanskrit for bliss. Anandamine is the delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, delta-9-THC, usually reduced to just THC. There are, in fact, many different THCs. The Delta-9 is the one that gets you high. Back in 2015, I was talking to a friend who's diagnosed with bipolar. And um, she said to me, I wish I could get high on cannabis. Mm. And a penny dropped. I was kind of, maybe for some people, the mania, the being too high of bipolar is an excess of anandamine in the brain. Sure. Now, what we have found in the last 20 years with the breeding and hybridizing of cannabis, it, it's gone up higher and higher in the levels of Delta 9 THC, and that has reduced the level of cannabidiol, one of the 80 or so other probably active ingredients of cannabis. And we're now seeing reports of what's called cannabis psychosis, um, which is usually fairly short-lived. If you stop using cannabis, it goes away. Mm. Um, and the dosages are amazing. The only case I was able to find dosage for, the guy was smoking an ounce a day of cannabis, Jesus. which is probably a hundred times more than the usual dose. Yeah, that's a lot of pot. Think of that in terms of wine. That's like drinking 200 glasses of yeah, wine instead. That, that's of like, a, so, it's, it's more than when any normal usage is ever going to approximate. Yeah, and you yeah. find yourself with a drug that even at those doses doesn't kill you. Any other drug, you know, you double the dose of heroin, you're dead. Yep. You drink a bottle of scotch in 10 minutes, you're dead. You know, so this is a drug that, that won't do that. But what was then found was that there are two systems within the human body called the endocannabinoid systems, which actually regulate more functions in us than any other system. Mm. So we have the endorphin system, the endogenous morphine system, and orphine, uh, into which morphine, all of the opioids, opiates will fit into those receptors. But that doesn't come close to the amount of things in the body that rely upon a supply of cannabidiol and anandamide. They're now positing that there's a third pathway, 
and that it may well be that, as I say, 60, 80 different substances in cannabis are all used in different ways in the body. So for some people, so I went online and checked because of this clever thought I'd had, and I found people who had bipolar disorder who were saying, and, and this is not a generalization, for these people taking cannabidiol, which has no psychoactivity, it, it doesn't affect you in any way. In, in the way you think and perceive. Nicotine, by the way, does, for any smokers out there, it has a psychoactive effect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It reduces anxiety, uh, particularly. But CBD or cannabidiol doesn't have this effect. And here were these people saying, you know, I used to take lithium carbonate and I had a little bit of a problem with that, but now I take high doses of cannabidiol and I'm completely stable. I never suffer from mania. Um, so you're going, well, maybe this is a natural substance. And what's happened is that because of criminalization, even though this drug's been used for at least two and a half thousand years, 2,300, they found cannabis resin in a tomb in China from 300 BC. Wow. It, it's one of the first medicines that's named. Um, it was the most grown crop in the world until whaling started in the 19th century because hemp oil from the seed was the clearest burning oil for lamps and because hemp seed is one of the five grains according right. to the Chinese. It's a very nutritious seed. We use the word canvas which is cognate with the word cannabis and the canvas sails of the ships that took Columbus sadly for some of the people there to the Americas were made from hemp cloth. Right. And on and on and on. That, right. And all of this has been suppressed in our culture. That, And worst of all, all of the medicinal investigation that should go on, at the end of the 19th century, it was found that you could very easily dilute opioids, opiates. Uh, the differentiation is opioids are all of the things that use molecules that of you know, morphine, whatever whereas opiates derived directly from the opium poppy. So at that time, they were all opiates. We now, our worst drug problem is, of course, with opioids, with synthetic, you know, and, and you now, the death toll in the US is unbelievable from drugs like Vicodin and OxyContin. But it was found in the 19th century that you could dilute these things into a, an aqueous solution, what you and I call water, and inject them. And doctors had this real thing about the hypodermic, you know, sticking needles under, under skin, hypodermic, to put things in. Cannabis, because it was only oil-soluble, couldn't be used in that way. And so it fell out of favor, even though it was in all of, or many, many medicines. So Eli Lilly, the creators of Prozac, in the 1860s, when the modern world began, it began with the first modern war, the American Civil War, with, what, 600,000 deaths? Yeah. The largest yeah. amount of casualties America has ever had in the war. Um, the division of the country, which goes on to this day, I'd say it started a bit earlier than that, actually, but that's another conversation and a long one. But there were all of these snake oil remedies, and those remedies largely consisted of alcohol, opium, often as laudanum, and cannabis. Yep. Eli Lilly founded their business as drug dealers on these chemicals. 
Yep. And now, of course, they're not very keen on or any of the pharmaceutical companies on cannabis being used because you can't patent it. Mm. And it costs a billion dollars to put a new drug into use. So if you're going to make this stuff and it's of, and the point is that, say, in terms of pain relief, there's now been a major study, a proper you know, gold standard study, 1,000 people out of Canada a few years ago, showing that cannabis is effective in pain relief for a significant amount of people over the kind of 60% threshold yep. and could be used instead of opioids mm -hmm. without the addiction prop, prop, prop problems, without the problem of killing anybody. You're over 100,000 deaths a year in the US now yep. on synthetic um, opium. And, you know, something that is absolutely natural to our system. But again, as you have said, everybody's individual. That's right. You know, it says in Life of Brian, you're all individual. We're all individual. You're all different. We're all different. I'm not. Um, just thought I'd get that in there. But that is one of the revelations of modern medicine that it doesn't matter if 94% of people respond to this thing. You could be part of the 6% that don't. Some people, I have a friend, if he was given diazepam, Valium, to sedate him, and it made him climb the walls. This was before surgery, so it wasn't very convenient. Um, people who are bipolar or you know towards that ADHD sometimes, uh, Robin Williams, Stephen Fry in this country are good examples of this. That if you give them cocaine or amphetamines, it tranquilizes them. Hmm. It does the opposite to what it does to most people. It's not a stimulant. So everybody is different and our metabolism is different. Some people, and this is an amazing revelation of modern medicine, some people don't get a beneficial effect from broccoli. From broccoli? Yeah. Other people, which contains vitamin K, helped by the Romans to be a great medicine and handed on to us. You know, you've got to eat your greens, haven't you? You've got to have your broccoli. But for some people, broccoli is actually slightly toxic. For some people. For other people, ice cream is medicinal. Wow. That and for me, definitely so chocolate is medicinal. You know? Yeah, that explains so much in my life. <laughs> but your metabolism is unique, yeah. both neurologically and physically. So right. um, while all sorts of medicines and what have you may be useful with any drug, if you take it, I have friends who have taken cannabis. Um, Paul Simon says, the first time I smoked, you know what? Paranoid. Yeah. And that's, that's a pretty common one at the beginning. I, yep. I wouldn't recommend smoking anything personally or even vaporizing it. If you're going to use cannabis, edibles is a good way to go. Tiny dose first time. Find out what your dose is. And with any drug you're taking, hope that you're one of the lucky ones that only needs a really small amount. Exactly. Exactly. Because you know? this stuff is expensive. No, all good advice. All very, very good points. This is um, that we're really just, you know, it's been 50, 60, 70 years, and we should be so much further along in this with the research on this, with the, yeah. the knowledge of this. And we're not. And it's been stopped. And it's been stopped, right? And we're dealing with that uh, very slowly, but it is being acknowledged. We now know this is the case. We, this isn't something we wonder about. We know who's been doing it. We know why they've been doing it. But most importantly, we're moving on past that, 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 that time now. We have, we have going on right now in Congress, despite 
despite the dysfunction and the nonsense that goes on in the United States Congress on a daily basis, they are still our, our government regulation and legislative body. And they are putting forth right now bipartisan legislation to reschedule cannabis, to de, de, you know, to deregulate it, and to try to get the banks opened up right now. That's happening right now, bipartisan efforts to get... Um, uh, pot stores all over America cannot engage in federally regulated trade. In other words, they can't have bank accounts that are that are insured by the FDIC because it's a federally controlled substance that they can't, you know, back up with their money. And so it's been a cash only business in so many states across the United States uh, with pot. And now that's changing, and the and the government is trying to uh, make changes in that direction. I think um, my my um, you know, pessimistic, cynical side, uh, is, is that it's not the, um, said revelation that they should reschedule this because there's a lot of people in need so much as there is so much money to be made with this. <laughs> and there, and we've now run the test cases, right? Enough States, Colorado, Oregon, so many more have opened up the doors on this for medical and for recreational. The test cases are done. We know what happens a lot of money is spent on this and there's a great deal of money to be made in it. And that might actually be as cynical or pessimistic as I might be about, you know, money motivation. The fact of the matter is that's what gets the gears in Washington moving. And that is what's happening right now. So we hoped, I hope personally to see more advances of this. Cause once you start seeing Netflix on document, you know, doc documentaries on Netflix about this stuff, you know, it's getting into the common conversation and people are aware of this stuff. And I think that's what's happening here slowly, 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 but it is happening. And so, um, I just say all that in a, in a sort of positive upbeat note of, I think as we're moving forward, government bodies and regulators are starting to see the ridiculousness of so much of what we've talked about today. And they're becoming aware of the history of this and how it is a, been an active campaigns that have been racially motivated, that have been, um, you know, culturally motivated, not fact motivated. They have been prejudicial, discriminatory uh, efforts to hold down minorities or parts of the population. And we're getting past that, that, that nonsense in many, many ways. While it's still manifest in lots of ways, still too, I'm not saying we're, we're living in the best of all possible worlds. I'm saying that I think that there is forward progress in this. Um, what do you see on your side? Well, I, I think if you ever manage to get a speaker in the house again, yeah. progress may be made. <laughs> That's right. That's uh, right. Maybe if as in Washington, D.C., it's available for medical use, if we then made it mandatory for people who are dilatory in running the government and economy of their country, that mandatory that they take cannabis at least once a day, they could sit and they could stop arguing with each other. That's and, and get friendly. You know, maybe if we prohibited alcohol on Capitol Hill um, and got rid of some of the aggressor chemicals, then that would be good. And we do have evidence now, and there's plenty of it. The, the second year after Colorado legalized and when they started actually looking at it, we got statistics at the end of that. Mm -hmm. Revenues were up massively, as you say, which is one of the driving aspects. Um, sense can also 
occasionally occur to politicians. We, we had a situation, David Nutt, who I've mentioned, was, was the chairman of, of the government's advisory committee on the misuse of drugs. And the then Home Secretary under the Labour government, Jackie Smith, went to him and said, you can't compare alcohol to cannabis. And he said, why can't I compare them? She said, because cannabis is illegal. Now, you want a circular argument. The other thing that was found, if I remember the statistic, is in that second year when they started monitoring and you know they'd got the shops set up and all of that, the use of alcohol, the, the purchase of alcohol went down by 11%. Mm -hmm. The crime rate went down. Mm -hmm. Violent crime particularly was affected. So we have a situation. I mean, let's get to, to, to one really horrific piece of information here. Mm. Um, Richard Milhouse Nixon, mm. also known as Tricky Dick, mm. instituted the war on drugs. How you have a war on drugs or terror or anything else, I don't really know. War on poverty and the March of Dimes and all of that happened. Part of the war on drugs was a new commission to sit down and investigate cannabis. And that commission said should be legal. Mm. Nixon, who was not known for his good temper, and was known for drinking large quantities of alcohol, and his psychiatrist said he was completely insane, a man who treated him for decades. Wow. Um, you know, and who had to have the nuclear button taken away from him because he wanted to fire missiles at college campuses because they did, you know, and was massively supported by the Moonies, who've now shifted their support to Donald Trump. Um, not going to say anything about that. But Nixon went to the University of West Virginia and said, I want you to prove, because this is what science is, I want you to prove that, that cannabis damages the immune system. And the studies that were done at that time were suppressed for more than 20 years. What they found was they took, um, I think, three different cancers, and they had mice in a control group, and mice with these three cancers that were given cannabis. All the mice in the control group died. The mice that were given cannabis survived. So because of an attitude of mind and a moral position, a drug that we're now having what is now being called real-world evidence as opposed to anecdotal evidence from thousands and even tens of thousands of people to say that cannabis appears in some cases to slow down or even halt the progress of cancer. So we have this farcical field of medical research which for years used healer cells, um, which is one of the great scandals of medicine, that billions were spent spreading these cells around the world for experiments on cannabis. And it was eventually discovered these cells, which were meant to be culturing different forms of cancer, were in fact all from the original donor. So they weren't different forms of cancer. This one woman, it was the equivalent of 800 times her body weight when she died was the amount of cells that had been, and they were used all over the world for this experimentation. And it meant that all of that work, which cost a fortune, was wasted. Wow. At the same time, a drug had been found that might be useful. You know, there, there's a case of a guy who had lymphatic cancer and he was busted because he was growing cannabis. This was, I think, in California some years ago. And the guy who diagnosed him contacted me and said, how come you're still alive? Nobody. I have never had a case survive so long. What are you doing? He said, I smoke an ounce of cannabis a day. Wow. Wow. Pretty whack. But that was, and the, the Ford Clinic 
investigated this this guy and said they couldn't find anything else that might be doing it. We now have a huge literature and going, well, so what was, you know, and with epilepsy, we, we, we now in this country, we now finally in 2018, the government had to reverse its position, which was that cannabis was scheduled as a drug with no medicinal value. Right. A friend of mine who was prescribed cannabis, but then couldn't get it because the doctors wouldn't give it to him, grew his own, got busted, went to court and was told there's no defense that you're treating your actually rather serious medical condition with this drug. Because it, it can't be because the law says it can't be. That's right. Just as uh, I mean, they're still back in the 1800s that way, the same way they are on, on uh, how we're trying to get them up to speed on coercive control. You know? Absolutely. And, yeah. and we're, we're living in a, a world where things are based upon gut instinct and feelings of knowing, which is how we started this conversation, rather than evidence. That's right. You know, we, we in this country, had, we have a politician called Michael Gove, who's been the cabinet minister for many years. When he was minister for education, um, he said, we've all had enough of experts. And he decided that all education should be monitored by examination that what teachers thought of their pupils was irrelevant. Wow. And we're, we, we're thrown back into a system. And then you go, but hang on a minute. We've had the PISA tables every two years for decades now. They estimate educational ability around the world. And every two years, Scandinavian countries come top in literacy and Asian countries come top in maths. And in the Scandinavian countries, they don't start teaching literacy until you're seven. Huh. Right. Finland has the highest level of literacy in the world for the last 20 years or something. And the other Scandinavian countries do well. And they have one examination. Right. In the whole of their time in school, there's an exam at the end. All of this SATs, all of this, you know, it's like the, that wonderful episode in The Wire where be, the kids are being taught the answers to the SATs. Yeah. Not being taught anything about living in the real world, and when the Bilski, the uh, the cop who's had to be thrown out because he keeps shooting things, and he's now a math teacher, and he starts, he finds he can get their attention by saying, "In craps, these are the odds of the numbers coming up," and they suddenly start learning maths, yeah. and he's he mustn't do that. That's that's wrong, evil, and bad. That we seem as a species to demand stupidity. As, as, a, as a rule, we've all had enough of experts. We don't want people who know anything telling us anything. Let's just guess. Let, in fact, let's get a Ouija board and see what that says. That's a much better way than having a thousand scientific experiments. And so we have a world beset with warfare and ruled by politicians who are, so many of them, predators and ignoramuses. Or is that ignorami? <laughs> I cannot find anything to disagree with you there on uh, John. You're absolutely right. And, and it's, and it is the way of things. Right. And um, like I said, has I, hope, been. I hope and we that- could evolve. We could evolve into sentient beings where we actually think about stuff and talk about stuff and use evidence. And why bother when you can sit with a cigar in one hand and a glass of whiskey in the other and say, drugs are bad. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I um I can't offer solutions to that particular problem today but I can say that okay. um 
that I think we are I think we are moving forward. I think the ball is going down the road in the right direction. And I have high hopes that it will uh, continue moving in that direction as laws are slowly but surely changed on this. You know, I mean, because we're at the we're we're past the tipping point on marijuana in the United States now. It's going to happen. There's no question about it. And psilocybin, right? And psilocybin, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then and from there will come MDMA and LSD as well, right? Because when you have, you know, when you have the likes of Joe Rogan and and major, major, you know, influential, Elon Musk. influential people, well, yeah, when you have them talking about, yeah, I went down to Costa Rica, I tried the ayahuasca and it was great, you know, or whatever. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, great yeah, guru, yeah. All of them, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, I, 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 I wish we could have better forerunners sometimes. Gwyneth Paltrow is not my my favorite person in the world. But the point is that the conversation's happening. It's hard to stop it once the wave gets going like that. And I think we are seeing cultural change. And I think we should be open to it. I think that we should be cautious, wary, like we said. There's recreational use and there's therapeutic use. And these are two different worlds. And as long as we're clear on that, I think that, you know, recreationally people can have fun. And I think therapeutically, there is a vast potential for improvement here. And we talked about how complex PTSD or PTSD has been treated with this already. And this is a beginning. We know we acknowledge that, right? We have a wide variety of biology to deal with with individuals. But I think that we're moving in the right direction when we can openly talk about how ridiculous it is that this stuff is illegal. And there's generally agreement on that principle, you know, uh, 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 across the boards. Except, so. of course, in my benighted country where the government has said that they have no intention of changing the drug laws whatsoever. Right. Uh, I don't believe, that, I mean, the Labour Party did change the classification of cannabis down and then put it back up again. Did they? Um, I don't think their policy, I think only our third party, the Liberal Democrats, have said that that they would legalise cannabis. Um so we, we are in a bizarre situation, but I think the weight of public opinion, it's 10 years ago that a survey was done here where 60% of people said that cannabis should be legalized. Mm. And when politicians get the idea that they won't be voted for. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, you know what? Your politicians haven't quite twigged on yet. If I'm going to forward my my thesis on how this, you don't happens. want the twigs, you want the flower buds, mate. Yeah, well, what they haven't what they haven't uh, flowered Budded. yet, right? Is the money? They haven't realized yeah, how much money. Ian Buckley Jr. was talking about this in the Republican Party in the 1970s. I think uh, you know. Yeah, that's I'm, the obvious thing. But the, there is there is a terrible fear that uh, that there will be seen to be immoral in yeah. some way. Yeah, well, um, that's, Roz, that's... and they don't mind being seen as stupid because they are. You know? <laughs> know, this is where the this is where the British need to need to get their act together on this on the morality thing. And I, yeah, British I, people, get your act together right, right now. No, but I mean, your but country I needs you. I get why. I mean, they're so. I mean, I don't know. I don't live in the UK. You know, I mean, I've only been there once, but it's just. God, you know, they're just so stuffy. They're so full of themselves. Oh, stuffy, stuffy, so full of themselves, I the British. And they all turn like this. They've all got sort of a plug in their mouth. And you don't know what they're doing. The British people are terrible. And you show me Boris Johnson and I go, really? That's an Eton education as well. Oh, you know, my the, God. The most famous school in the world, David Cameron, 
Nick Clegg, his deputy, Eaton. Yeah. Did yep. they sleep Lots through their it. classes? I mean, these are some of the stupidest people I've ever seen. And well, I, that's, I, it's an interesting all, I'm not at all putting American politicians ahead of them because they're, they're also... No, Donald, Donald Trump is a genius. He's a very stable genius. Oh, my God. And he knows about beautiful, clean coal. Be- beautiful, clean coal? Where did that come from? But, yes. yeah, no, you're quite right. We are benighted, and, and you leave the world in terms of plutocracy. Oh, it's the worst. It's the worst. But somehow, but here's the thing. We all, the, 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 thing the, the thing that gives me, I'm not going to say hope, but the thing that gives me at least the idea that, that we can continue rather than it's all going to hell in a handbasket and why bother is that it, they're not the ones who really get the work done. You know, like when you go to Washington, when you go, you know, when you get into the trenches and actually want to get work done. It's the lobbyists. Well, it's the interns and it's the aides. And, and then it's the members of the family. Anyway, moving right along, I think we should probably wrap up for today. We have finally had our psychedelics conversation. We got down to the roach. We did. And, you know, and I, and I think as we've both shown here, actually, you know, you can go up, you can go down, you can take either view. Right now, I suppose either one of them is, is, is valid. But I choose to think that we are moving in a positive direction with the use of these substances in a therapeutic setting. I hope we continue moving in that direction. I hope the clamps don't get put down on on all of this again because of some stupid morality principle or something that has no basis in fact. You know, I'm, a, I'm all about morals, but not about bullshit. And there's so much bullshit that's been piled into this into this zone or area for so many years. It's, it's nice to see at least some of it is being acknowledged as the bullshit that it is, and we're trying to move on and clean it up. So I hope we continue in that direction. Yeah, and and... To make a comparison, you can go to a store and buy Tylenol, you can buy aspirin over the counter, mm-hmm. and you can kill yourself with them mm. quite easily. You can take Tylenol and damage your liver so badly that you'll never recover. I've known somebody that, that happened to. Yep. And here we are prohibiting drugs which you can't overdose on. You can't kill yourself with LSD. You can be a bit silly for quite a long time, but the thought, you know, it's right to prohibit arsenic, strychnine, you know, things like this. Absolutely. It's not a good idea that you could go down to the shop and buy that and put it in your wife's porridge. And who'd want to? <laughs> but here we are prohibiting substances. And I'm saying, look, if there is any constitutional right there should be, it is the right to my constitution. Ah. I have the right to decide what I do to me. That's Absolutely. Right. If I want to cut my nose off to spite my face and become a politician, I can do that. There you go. If I want to go on a stage publicly and say I'm a member of the Republican or the Democrat Party, I'm allowed to do that, to perform that folly. And I'm allowed to in, engage in all of the backstage deals to get the money so that I can do that. If I'm allowed to do that, I should be able to smoke a spliff. As I say, I don't smoke anything, but I should be allowed to. And this again brings us back to the life of Brian, where it is argued that Loretta, although she cannot have a baby because she's a bloke, should have the right, Reg, to have a baby if she wants to. And it's about 
you know, my rights have been taken away from me here. My right to my freedom of mind is being taken away from me if I'm being told what I can and cannot do with my own body. Yep. So leave me alone. I'm in a build. Whoop, I'm in a build a wall and keep the world out. That's the spirit. No, hang on, this is different. This is Joe Biden, isn't it? I'm building a wall. Uh huh. <laughs> All right, John. Well, thank you for great sharing. Great pleasure as ever. No, absolutely. Thank you for sharing all of the knowledge you did today. It was actually quite impressive. You've obviously done research on this. You have some idea of what you're talking about. I spent was- this afternoon reading up on it. Yeah. Uh, okay, great. Well, like I said, you've done some research. It's no, it's it is. It's always a pleasure talking to you about this stuff because you do go deep, and I appreciate your time and attention on this. And I think mm-hmm. this is a. I think this one is something worth talking about in the long run. Because if we're talking about, because uh, because really, I mean, at the end of the at the end of the day, we're talking about recovery. We're talking about helping people mm-hmm. through a process. When you've been through years, years of daily abuse, of psychological mm-hmm. torment, of gaslighting, of lying, of of criminal activity enforced on you because you thought you were part of something great and you come out of that and you find out it's not something great and you were actually kind of an asshole for a really long time, it would be really nice to have something to sort of grease the road out of that situation. And if these substances allow us to change, literally change our mind and through, a ther- and through therapy and through counseling and through help, we can get out of this situation, get back to normal more quickly and more easily, and we can help more people as a result. Well, shit. I mean, what you know, where's the argument here? This is absolutely yeah. something we should be doing. And at the end of the day, all of our talk and all of our wonderings about this are in that direction. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's about freedom of choice. It's about freedom of mind, and it's about your right to choose a path to recover. And if you can find something that will accelerate that path, and there's a lot else, we're not suggesting that you should just go home and you know drop some acid and you'll all be fine. It that's not it at all. That's right. But it may be. It is helpful. It has proved to be helpful to some people. Um, I have a friend who was eight years in Scientology and he said to me, the thing I most resent about Aaron Hubbard is I lost eight years when I could have been taking drugs. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Thanks very much yep. for coming around, everybody. Thank Thanks for listening to us go on at a mad rate. I hope you found this episode educational, informative, and entertaining. Yeah, send us your money. Send us your money. That's right. Uh, <laughs> links below to do so on both of our channels and support our work. All right. And uh, that all being said, see you guys next week.